This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. We end another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. You need only to call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the weather looks a little ominous a little bit away from us. So if it starts to rain, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to the studio producer. We got a lot going on tonight. I'm going to be teaching out of First Thessalonians chapter 5, the first 10 verses. Um, we're going to be talking about the day of the Lord. We talked about the rapture of the church last week, and then we're going to talk about the day of the Lord and some of the differences between those two things. It's a study that I really enjoy doing. So that's tonight here at 7 o'clock. You can watch it at calvarysa.com, or you can join us. We've usually got room on Friday nights. You can join us. We would love to, to see you and uh, love on you a little bit. Uh, Sunday, I'm going to be teaching out of Mark chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse. I need you to pray for me because I need to do like most of it because it's all together. And boy, it's a lot and I talk too much. So uh, we'll be doing the Olivet Discourse from the Gospel of Mark on Sunday. Um, Made it through our first week of school. It has been so crazy noisy around here today. The kids ending their spirit week and uh, been a good time. It's been a good, good week. Okay, having said all of that, let's get to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls. The first one is anonymous from a mobile app, and uh, they ask, do you believe the miracle of Fatima was from God and was authentic? And then he or she says, thank you. Um, No, I don't believe it was authentic. I don't believe it was from God. Um, it, um, um, for those of you who don't know, it was 1917, uh, three children in, uh, Fatima, Portugal, um, uh, claimed to have had the blessed Virgin Mary, um, appear to them holding rosary beads. And the, the way anonymous, we know that's not genuine. We know it's not from God is because it's simply contrary to what the Bible teaches about Jesus. I, I think about the Mount of Transfiguration whenever I think of the appearances like this. It's also the the, the Virgin of Guadalupe. Um, 
um, when, when, when Peter, James, and John were on the mountain and Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah, and Peter said, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let us build a shelter for, for Moses and Elijah. And um, um, a voice from heaven cried out, this is my son. Listen to him. And that's the same thing. Now, uh, I believe something happened there. Um, I don't think there's any doubt something happened there. I don't believe it was mass hysteria. Uh, I personally believe that it was uh, supernatural, but it wasn't the spirit of God. It was the spirit of the enemy who masquerades as an angel of light. But here's what I can say to you, Anonymous. Um, Mary would be aghast at the attention that Catholics give her. That's just not the way it's supposed to be. She's not a co-redemptrix. She's not appearing to people. She is a servant of the Most High God. She's not the mother of God. She is a servant of God. And grateful to her son. Um, a special place. She was a special woman. Um, a young woman, but but special. Um, but But certainly, she would be embarrassed by the attention that is given to her in all of this. So this was not authentically from God. Again, I do believe that supernaturally something happened. Uh, there have been other appearances of Mary uh, over the, 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 the years. Um, they're, they're just simply not from God. That's all. And we need to understand that. And uh, it breaks my heart that Catholics are sort of duped into this. Um, but no, it, it wasn't authentic. And it wasn't from the Lord. So I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Bryant. Um, did God always plan to save Gentiles, or was it just because Jews rejected Jesus? You know, Bryant, these are questions that we humans ask that we wouldn't have to ask if we understood that God knows everything. Of course, God uh, always had a plan to save the Gentiles. God so loved the world. That didn't just start when John wrote his gospel account. Um, he always loved Gentiles. He always knew um, what Adam and Eve would do. He always knew that there was a plan of redemption um, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, um, um, yeah, it was always part of his plan. Jesus said, uh, that there are my, my father is sheep of, from another fold or sheep that are not from this flock. And that was a reference to Gentiles. So as much as Jews hated Gentiles and Gentiles hated Jews, um, it was always a part of God's plan to reconcile the two. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about Jew and Gentile becoming one. That is to God's glory. So it was always his plan. It wasn't uh, when the, Jesus, he said he came to his own and his own received him not. Um, Jesus didn't say, oh, no, what are we going to do now? Of course they knew what they were going to do. And it was always his plan to to uh, make the church and the church's job uh, in this these last days, which have lasted now for nearly 2,000 years, it was the church's job to go out and win the world to Christ, to make disciples of all nations. Um, but But God is not done, Bryant, with Israel. Uh, in the millennial reign, uh, Israel will take the rightful place and all of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses, and to David, all of those promises will be fulfilled. So it was always God's plan. You know, we as humans, we, we have backup plans when things don't work out. Uh, God never needs a backup plan. 
God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And I, I, this is an inadequate explanation, Brian, but, but one of the things I've always used uh, uh, is a Rubik's Cube. You know, I cannot, if somebody messes up my Rubik's Cube, I've got Rubik's Cubes in my office, I cannot fix them. I just can't. My, my brain doesn't work that way. Um, well, well, God, is Rubik's Cube is always perfect. No matter what man does to mess it up, God is always and is perfect again. So um, God doesn't have to scramble like we do. God doesn't have to make plan B's or plan C's. God has a plan, and that plan was for Jesus to come and be a man, to take on human flesh forever the God-man, and die for the sins of the world, thus reconciling the world to Jesus, and then for that reconciliation to be effective. Of course, all we need to do is... um, say yes. That's all we need to do is we need to agree with him that we are sinners and that he is the only answer for sinners. Good question. Thank you. Here's a question from Lionel. He says, are there some books in the Bible that we ought to read more than others? Uh, Lionel, I think so, yes. Now, I, I tell the church here all the time that that every Christian ought to read through the book of Acts and through the book of Revelation twice a year. Um, the, the rest of the time you're just reading the Bible. But but I think we ought to read through book, the book of Acts and the book of Revelation twice a year. The book of Acts, because that's how we're supposed to behave. That's the, the work that God has given us to do. The book of Revelation, because we're to look for Jesus' soon return. And, and naturally, if we really believe that Jesus is coming soon, I'll be talking about that in my Bible study tonight. If we really believe that Jesus is coming soon, then we will make different choices. We will behave differently. We will seek God. We'll pursue God. We'll learn to trust him and to walk by faith. So, yeah, I think those are those are the books that, that I think we ought to read. Now, uh, I also think Genesis is is vital. So Genesis is a book that you ought to be familiar with. And you've got to reconcile all the things that Genesis says versus all the things that have been crammed down our throats uh, since we were in grade school. Um, But Genesis is the foundational book. So we need to read Genesis. And obviously there's great value in reading through the the Gospels. But I'm not one of those guys who says, well, this book has more power, more impact than another, because they're all important. And frankly, Lionel, when I was a brand new believer, one of the things that intrigued me was trying to find out why some books were important. I mean, I didn't I didn't have any background in the Bible. So, OK, why should I read the prophet Joel? Why should I read Malachi? Uh, and, and so I would go and try to find out. And when I started looking for Jesus in those books... Uh, it was amazing how alive those books became. I'm actually going through Jeremiah right now, personally, another time. And um, uh, it's new to me. I love it all over again. And and after now, having been a pastor for 27 years, uh, I've, I know Jeremiah a little bit better. I've experienced some of Jeremiah's stuff. Not nearly as bad. I don't mean to imply that. But uh, I know him better. And I can anticipate the arguments that he's making before God and the questions that he's asking the Lord. So I just think if you're in your Bible, Lionel, um, read the books, the doctrinal books. Romans, of course, is really important. But uh, I'm not one who will say, well, uh, Romans is more important than Philippians or, 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 or more important than Colossians. 
just keep reading, and believe me, the Lord will bless you abundantly in the process. Thank you for the question. Here's a question from Mandy, and I'm laughing, Mandy, not at you, but because uh, you're, you think like I do. Mandy says, if Solomon was the wisest man in the Bible, why did he end up failing so badly? What does that say about wisdom? Um, Mandy, what it says is that wisdom is no match. And, and he was the wisest man who's ever lived, a part, whose name wasn't Jesus or Adam. Um, Solomon was the wisest man. Um, but wisdom is no match for our flesh. It's just that simple. And, and flesh is why he ended up failing so badly. He had uh, a proclivities for women that were unwise and unhealthy. And so we can say, yeah, he was wise, but his behavior, the choices he made, was unwise. Now, Mandy, one of the things that, that uh, can give you hope, read Ecclesiastes. Um, don't be a stranger to that book. I know it's it's poetic, and a lot of times we Christians don't really understand it. But I think if you really dig in, what you've got is his testimony. Ecclesiastes is an old Solomon looking back on a life that's been wasted. It started out wonderful, great potential, pleasing to God. And, and it wasn't long in, in times of peace and prosperity. I don't know why we struggle when we're at peace or when we are prospering, but we do. Um, Solomon just let go of God in favor of the women that he married and the false gods that they brought in. He was not a good spiritual leader in his own home uh, because he allowed his foreign wives to to uh, worship their false gods even in his home. So um, I guess I can say it again. Wisdom is no match for flesh. And um, if we understand that uh, in our flesh is no good thing, then we'll cling to God. And that's really the only wisdom that has any value at all. Good question, Mindy. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-5757. Here is a question from Randy. He says, what is the best form of discipleship? In the church, I misread that initially, Randy. I'm sorry. I was thinking it was discipline, uh, discipleship. Uh, I think the best form of discipleship in the church is just Bible study. Um, we we have the the larger Bible studies that I do, uh, but we have smaller Bible studies as well. And each of those studies has an opportunity for um, um, new believers or immature believers. We have a foundations class for men and women. Uh, in youth, we have classes. And in those classes, while there's Bible study that is taught, there's also the opportunity for questions and discussion. And I think that's the best form of discipleship. I also think, Randy, discipleship happens when people are serving. Um, when you're serving, um, I'll give you an example. We, we've got um, big ministries. We've got small ministries. Uh, Saturday morning cleanup crew, for example. We've had the same group of 10 to 20 people uh, who've been showing up for years and years and years and years, decades in in some cases. Um, And they just love each other. They love being around one another. They get the work done and they hang out in fellowship. But there's a lot of discipleship that goes on in those um, um, groups where people are serving. 
And when you're seeing people who are equally committed to serving the Lord, then you can't help but to be uh, um, encouraged and exhorted by the examples of the people who are there. So I think probably serving uh, in a small group makes a big church small. Um, I also, Randy, and this just for us, I, I don't know that a lot of other people do this, but uh, we have had now for most of our 27 years here uh, a, a pastor's discipleship class. Uh, we, we have one coming up tomorrow. So it's every other Saturday from 1030 to 1230. And uh, what I do is I take people who are really interested in, in committing to service, to serve. These are people that really want to get close to the Lord. They're people who want to, to give sacrificially of their time and their talent. Um, and And I will gladly sit down and take the time and we talk about everything and and randy this is a group where i'm super super direct i'm direct anyway when i teach but i'm even way more direct these are the people who they they understand this class is a class for servants so they're going to be here more than one service on sunday they're going to be taught one service they're going to serve in another service and in many cases they they stay for all three services and just do different types of of service and um uh, they get to know my heart intimately they get to know how i think um um, there's a lot of really fruitful discussion that occurs and so that type of discipleship has been super effective for me every pastor that i've ordained Every pastor that we've sent out to start a church, uh, all of my elders, uh, all of them have come out of that class. And for me, Randy, the, the the super bonus is when we come to church on Sunday, I'll have probably 70 people, and that's typically what's in that class. I'll have 70 people here who are looking out for new believers. They're looking out for people who are hurting. They're looking out for people that are new to our church. And and they're going to be involved um, face-to-face with, with these people uh, throughout the course of the day. Uh, nobody comes in here and, and, and isn't greeted. Uh, you have to work really, really hard not to be greeted here. And so I've got these servants who are out loving on people and praying for people and uh, it's just wonderful to watch them using their gifts. So that is uh, the way we've approached discipleship. Uh, in the negative vein here, Randy, the one thing that uh, we don't do here is we don't encourage. You know, I don't discourage it. Uh, I encourage people to look for people that are walking with the Lord, who are demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. But but we're not one of these mentoring or one-on-one discipleship um, churches. I, I don't think that's effective uh, and it gives uh, too big an opportunity uh, for wolves uh, in the church to uh, take advantage of people who are in need. So, Randy, I hope that makes sense to you. But um, that is, in my view, the best discipleship um, we've got going. Let's take a phone call. We've got Jimmy on line one from San Antonio. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, sir. Um, I was going to ask you. Um... Oh, Galatians five twenty two twenty three, the fruit of the spirit. Somebody told me I don't have mm-hmm. the fruit of the spirit, but they say, "Oh, you don't have the fruit of the spirit," <laughs> because I share other scriptures like Revelation and stuff like that with people. But because they say I'm going to scare them when I share stuff like that. But anyway, uh, and I, but it says 
the last sentence is there's no law against this. What does that mean? Like, there's no law. Like, we're not supposed to. What does he mean by saying there's no law against this? Well, that's just Paul's way of saying this is expected behavior. Jimmy, let me ask you a question. What do you think they're, they mean when they say you don't have the fruit of the Spirit? Because, I guess, because I don't, they say, well, you don't have love and kindness and self, you know, self-control or whatever you say, because you're, you're sharing like stuff like, uh, like, uh, the Antichrist is here and the spirit of the Antichrist is here and stuff like that. And I'm just like kind of warning people. And then I've been sharing revelations with them and they said, well, that, that's scary. And I said, no, it isn't scary. If you're born again, you know, if you're born again, through the blood of Jesus, it's not scary. It's hope for us. You know, you don't want to be here for the great tribulation. You want to go up with Jesus in the rapture. That is hope for us. Yeah. But they, yeah, they're that's, scared. That's what, I, they yeah, that's what I thought they, were, they meant, Jimmy. Let, let, me, let me give you a, a suggestion here. And, and one of these things, we've got to stop worrying about what people think. Uh, the most unloving thing you could do to somebody who isn't saved is to let them go on in sin in peace. So um, we need to tell people Jesus is coming back. We need to warn them about things that are coming. And when somebody says to you, well, that's not very loving, ask them, well, would you explain to me what that means? Do you want me to tell you that everything is fine and the world is going to get better and we're going to sing Kumbaya? Or, Or do you want me to tell you the truth in love? And and I think those kinds of questions open up the opportunity for discussion. You know, Jimmy, one of the things that I've done when people have said to me that that well, well, you're not giving me much hope, or you're you're too harsh. Um, I'll ask them. I'll say, please for, for, forgive me for being harsh for disappointing you. But I care so deeply about you. That gives me the opportunity. But I care so deeply about you that. I really want you to be ready when these things happen. And the world that we live in is falling apart. I'm going to be talking a little bit about this tonight, uh, Jimmy, because it's about the day of the Lord, First Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, I don't want anybody I care about to get caught up in that. I don't want anybody to be here for the Great Tribulation. And if all they mean when they say you're not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit um, if all they mean is that, well, well you're scaring me, um, sometimes it's good to scare somebody. And, you know, we, uh, the other thing to do is memorize the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. Um, um, against such things there is no law. In, in other words, we're free to walk in those things and then ask them, which of those things am, am I not demonstrating? Am I not being kind? Our son, Ronnie, who is our older son, um, one day he was getting ready, uh, talking to his mom about Jesus coming back, and he said, I'm going to go get a haircut. I want to look really good. And, and she said, what? And he goes, well, Jesus is coming back. And, and she said, well, well, when he comes back, he's not taking you. You're not saved. And he looked at her and he said, Mom, you're busting my bubble. And and that was a bubble that needed to be busted. And I think sometimes people want you to tell them everything is going to be okay, the world is going to be better, 
And uh, the truth is the world that we live in is getting worse with with lightning speed, and it's only going to get worse from this point forward. So one of the things, Jimmy, that we have to do is is just share our heart with people. This is why I'm telling you this. It's because I love you, because I care, and I am being kind. And when you say that the spirit of the Antichrist is already here, all you have to do is open to First John and tell him, look, I'm that's not me. I'm just quoting what the Bible says. And we need to be serious about our walk with the Lord. One of the things, Jimmy, that we've got going on in the world that we live in is a whole bunch of people who think, they hope, got their fingers crossed, they're Christians, uh, but they don't want the fact that they're a professing Christian to change the world they live in. They don't want uh, to change the choices they make or the lifestyles that they live. And we need to be able to say to people, do you think for a moment... Do you think for a moment that anybody who hasn't lived one minute for Jesus Christ is really saved? And then using that passage in Galatians, you can go to verse 19 and ask him honestly, which of these describes your life more closely? And you can read the bad fruit of the flesh from 19 to 21 or or, or these and then read 22 and 23 and you can say which of those if you're really being honest which of those describes your life and then they're kind of forced to think about it at least but Jimmy don't worry about what people think you know your heart and so does Jesus hey thanks for tuning in we've got 30 minutes left in the program 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR we'll be back in two minutes Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our final 30 minutes of the week. We'd love to have your calls and questions. Here is a question anonymously. Um, How do we accept a loving God and all of the evil in the world at the same time. Anonymous, because we have so much evil in the world, that's why we need to accept a loving God. A question like this presupposes that God is either the cause of the evil, or that he doesn't care about all the evil, or that he is powerless to control all of the evil. And the idea that, well, if God is a God of love, why is there so much pain and suffering? There's no way that you can blame God for any of the evil and the pain and the suffering in the world. He is the answer for those things, but but he's not responsible for any of those things. I, I'm a little flummoxed always when I get this question because I don't understand why human beings think that God owes us, especially a God that we don't serve or a God that we don't believe in, why does God owe us a pristine life? You know, the fact that God is sovereign and, and, and his sovereignty is never more powerfully demonstrated than the goodness he brings out of an evil world. Um, but God is not 
responsible for the evil in this world. That's 100% on humans. And again, this question sort of um, puts the onus on God to, to stop evil. But if he were to stop evil, any evil act, because he's holy, because he is just, he would have to stop all evil acts. All evil acts. That means when a guy is going to murder a schoolroom full of children or um, somebody's going to be raped or something horrible is going to happen, that God, if he stopped that, if he intervened, he would also have to intervene when a man and a woman or a man and a man or a woman and a woman who aren't married are, are having sex because that's evil in his eyes. So we need to be careful. We say, God, stop all this evil, because if he did, he'd probably stop you. Now, having said that, here's the good news. There is a time coming when God is going to put an end to evil. Just like when he said uh, to Noah, my spirit will not contend with man forever. His year, his days will be 120 years. Um, uh, Noah, from the time he started building the ark, until the end was 120 years. God, in his patience, gave the people there 120 years to repent and turn from their sin. They refused to do so. Well, we don't have a definite date. But what we do have is Jesus' words, Behold, I am coming soon. And because he's coming soon, um, we should need no more warning. Um, tonight's Bible study in First Thessalonians 5, he, he, a thief would come in the middle of the night as, as an act of surprise. Well, that's when Jesus is coming back. But since we've been warned about that, then we have the opportunity to change the decisions we make and the, the lives that we are living and turn from sin and turn to God. And we won't be caught off guard. But God now is allowing evil in this world because he's patient, unwilling that any should perish. That's what Peter says. And we need to be grateful to him for that. Historically speaking, God proved he's a loving God by sending his own son to die for your sins. So don't blame him for the sin, for the evil. Rather, turn to him because he's the only answer for the evil in your life and the evil in your heart. So, um, you know, we're we're pretty fair-weather human beings here. When things are going good, we're all okay with everything. But, but when wickedness touches us, when pain or grief enters our life, um, our first response is shake our fist at God and question him in the way that you've questioned him here. So, a loving God doesn't guarantee that wicked people are going to be fine. And life is going to be a breeze. And there's not going to be any evil. We call that heaven. And in heaven, there won't be any more pain, any more sorrow. And you can go to heaven simply by asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins and surrendering your life to him. And I hope and pray that you will do that. 
340-9585 for your live calls and questions on this Friday afternoon. Here's a question from Stephen. Is it selfish to pray for a wife? Sort of, Stephen, but it's not bad selfish. Um, you can quote scripture. God, you said it's not good for man to be alone. So I'm ready to be married. Lord, help me to find the woman that you've found for me. And uh, and pray. I, I think it's a good thing to pray for her uh, long before you know her. Just remember that if you're praying for a wife, then you've got to be the man who rightly represents the Lord. That means you've got to be sexually pure. If you're going to ask God for a wife, but you're involved with pornography, Stephen, that's the prayer that God can't answer. He, how could he bring a woman that he loves into that situation? If And, and Stephen, this isn't personal for you, but this is you because you asked the question. But if you drink, if you're angry, if you're holding on to unforgiveness uh, toward other people, uh, if you're not kind, if you're not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, uh, why would God bring somebody that he really loves to you? And I've always found when somebody really wants to be married, whether it's a man or a woman, when somebody really wants to be married, the question to ask them is, if you were God, would you bring somebody you love to you based on the way you're living your life? And if you can answer that question, honestly and say, yes, I would. I'm, I'm walking with Jesus. Then just open your eyes because that wife is right around the corner. But no, it's not at all selfish to pray for a wife. Make sure your motives are right. Lord, bring this woman into my life so I can bless her, so that I can serve her, so that I can love her and cherish her and show her who you are. Jesus, give me that opportunity. But if you want to pray for a wife because you're lonely or because you want in sex, whatever the other possible reasons are, then you're probably going to be waiting a while. So Stephen, don't rush him. Uh, keep your eyes open and make sure your heart is right before God. And he just might answer that prayer very quickly. It is not good for a man to be alone. Um, just keep reminding Jesus of his statement. Here is a question from Donald. Uh, Pastor Ron, do Christians have to keep the law? Uh, no, Donald, we don't have to keep the law. We can't keep the law. Um, but here's the way to look at it. We get to keep the law. I had this question this week a couple of times, in fact, uh, similar questions. And I said, you know, of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. So those are opportunities. Those are a privilege for us to be able to say, yes, Lord, because... You said, if you love me, you will obey me. I want to obey you, Lord. So, yes, I'm going to keep the commandments. But I can't even do that on my own. So I need to stay close to you. I need the power of your spirit flowing through me, Lord. Or I'm going to break every one of them. So, Donald, it's not a matter of we have to. We get to. And it's a whole different dynamic when you're serving God because you love him. It, it, it's then a labor of love than if you're forced to. And so, no, we don't have to keep the law. The old covenant was canceled, Paul says. Jesus established a new covenant, a covenant of grace that is not a license to sin. It just means that Jesus is closer to you. He's in you. And a sin against God's grace is a far, far, far greater sin than a sin against God's law. 
So I hope that makes sense to you, Donald. We don't have to keep the law. We get to keep the law. And imagine Jesus smiling at you when you're obedient. Good question. Darnell asked this question. When we pray for something, are we really trying to get God to do what we want, even if it's not his will? Uh, Darnell, I think a lot of people are praying exactly that. God, do this for me. God, do that. We're not saying, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. Um, But um, the the way to really resolve this question is, is to submit yourself to the will of God. Thy will be done, Lord. That's all I want. I want what you want for me, not one thing more and not one thing less. And then pretty much, Darnell, when you are praying for whatever it is you're asking God for, with thanksgiving, Paul said, make your request known to God, um, then then you're, you're praying in the will of God. David writes, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you're delighting in Jesus, he's actually going to place the desires that come from his heart into your heart. And when that happens, you know you're going to be praying in God's will. So the easy way to deal with this question, Darnell, is just make sure that when you pray, say, Lord, what I really want is your will and not mine be done. We we have a lot of things here that we pray for, Darnell, and and um, my typical way of praying for him is, Lord, uh, I only want this if it's your will, but I'm sure hoping this is your will. So um, just be sure you're not praying to get something from God. You're You're communicating with the God who loves you the God who proved his love for you um, because you want in your life what he wants for you. I try to tell the church here all the time, Darnell, that that what God wants for you is infinitely greater than anything you can imagine for yourself. Sometimes God doesn't respond quickly enough. Other times he gives us something we don't know we want, but if we keep walking with Jesus, we find out that the things that he really gives us and the things that he denies us are the best things that we could possibly ask for. Thank you. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, I'm saved, but often doubt my salvation because of my struggles with sin and temptation. How can you help me understand? Uh, we have an enemy. Now, here's where you need to exercise faith. The Bible says, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, um, You've got to decide by faith where you believe what the Bible teaches, regardless of what you feel or how you feel. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is something you ought to memorize. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So when you're in the middle of being tempted uh, to, to whatever the sin is that you're struggling with, at that moment, that's when you cry out to Jesus. And all God wants you to do is keep struggling. Don't give in to it. Don't make excuses for your sin. But understand that whenever you do what you know you're not supposed to do, the devil is going to be there pushing all kinds of condemnation buttons. And you think you're a Christian. You think you're saved. None of that, none of that is true. You've got to be able to identify that which comes from the devil versus that which comes from God. Here's a quick, easy way, Anonymous. Condemnation, I say, always draws you away from the Lord. Oh, I'm not worthy to go to church. Oh, I can't read the Bible. God's not going to speak to me. I can't pray. 
that's what condemnation does. Conviction of the Holy Spirit always draws you to the Lord. To the Lord. And if you understand that, you'll be able to identify the differences. Thank you for the question. Let's go to James from Belmont on line one. James, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah. Hey, Pastor Ron. Uh, you know, just listening to, to you talk there um, brings a thought to mind, uh, so I guess I have two questions. Uh, the first is kind of just a continuation of what you were just saying. Um, would I be wrong uh, to say that um, that with Christ, uh, with the infilling of the Spirit, that there's actually anything that um, uh, that I can't overcome? And I and I it's funny because then I turned around and and say that I can't overcome. Let me rephrase that as: uh, <laughs> Is there anything seriously that we can't overcome? Um, and then and then my other question, uh, which was really the reason why I called, um, I have never really understood about Balaam and uh, Balaam, and I've. Mm-hmm. Tried kind of going back over that again, and I, I just find it incredibly interesting how the Lord uh, uses him. Um, and I and and then for him to say, you know, what can I do but speak what the Lord is telling me to say? Um, which I the whole story is just um, there's just so much there, and so I'm trying to to get into bits and pieces. Uh, make a long story short, I'm looking at the fourth message. Uh, numbers around 24. Um, I lost it now, but I want to say it was around 17 and 18. When he was speaking about seeing a star that was going to come out of Jacob, uh, a scepter that would rise out of Israel, you made me skip over into uh, Corinthians, so I think I lost my spot. But it was talking about how, um, right after that, it mentions how he... Uh, here it is, would crush the forehead of Moab, uh, the skull of the people of, of Sheth. Uh, Edom would be conquered, saying that a ruler would come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors you know, of, of, those, of that city. I've heard a lot of people uh, who would say that um, this was a foreshadowing of the, of the coming of the Messiah, of, uh, of, of Jesus, uh, our Lord. And then I can also see where I would have come up with first would have been actually uh, David himself. Um, I just wanted to know if you could just kind of tell me a little bit of, of, of your thoughts as far as um, Balaam in general, uh, specifically the fourth message, uh, the star and the scepter. Um, I'm curious if that's two different events, um, like like there could be two different comings, or is it the same um, re- reference to one individual, or how, how do you think that works? Yeah, how thank, thank you, James. I, I can do that. Um, let, let me deal with numbers first, and then I'll, I'll deal with the other question about um, um, overcoming. Um, the, the reference in Numbers 24, beginning in verse 17, is clearly a reference, a prophecy of Jesus. So um, it, it's nothing else. It doesn't refer to David. Um, uh, this is a time when um, uh, that, that foreshadows all the way down the corridor of time and space to the uh, the millennium. Remember, this is the Old Testament's written to Jews from a Jewish perspective, and uh, this is a, a prophecy that 
those enemies uh, of Israel are going to be conquered. Uh, the ruler that will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city uh, is short and to the point. That's just Jesus. Now, if you go back to verse 20 or down next verse, verse 20, then, then the look is into a more immediate future. Then Balaam saw Amalek and entered his oracle. So the different oracle, one from God, one from Balaam. Now, let me talk about Balaam for a minute because Balaam is, is truly an interesting character. He's called a prophet of God. Um, but he's only a prophet when God is a, a prophet of God. He's only a prophet of God when he's um, um, speaking the words of God. When he says, look, you can ask me to curse them, but I can, I can only tell you what God says. When he's communicating truthfully what God has said, then he's a spokesman for God. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that Balaam is a believer. It doesn't mean that Balaam is going to be in heaven. Balaam was a man who was well-known um, throughout that part of the world uh, for for uh, witchcraft, for sorcery. Um, he, 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 he was sort of a, um, a high-priced um, cursor. Uh, kings would come to him whenever they had a need. So he was well-known and a wealthy man. Uh, the, the New Testament says more about Balaam, but uh, he wasn't a prophet of God except when he was saying what God told him to say. But again, it doesn't mean that he was a servant of God. He He's certainly not in the category of the other prophets of God. Um, he just served the Lord in that particular time. And his job and, and his motive was money. His job was to curse Israel. And every time he tried, and he tried, every time he tried, God said, nope, can't do it. And uh, as it turns out, he ended up, showing Balak uh, exactly how to get Israel to curse themselves. He he still wanted the money, even though God told him he couldn't uh, curse them. He still wanted the money. And so his uh, his response was, okay, here's, I, I know of, of uh, Israel's God, so here's how you get him to curse. And of course, that's when the, um, the, the Moabite women came into the camp of the, the Jewish men and um, and enticed them sexually to worship false gods. And basically the result was they cursed themselves. Balaam still got his money. So that's all that's, that was about. So, um, um, again, first the, the star that will come out of Jacob uh, is Jesus. And then um, Balaam, as interesting he is, he's not a good guy at all. Let me talk about the other question really quickly. You talked about... Um, uh, the sin, the overcoming. Um, um, obviously, we want to obey God. Acts five thirty two says God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. I quoted First Corinthians chapter ten verse thirteen: uh, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. Uh, and then it says, "And God is faithful." Thankfully, James it didn't say James has to be faithful or Pastor Ron has to be faithful. And God is faithful; He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will give you a way out so you can stand up under the temptation. You can have victory over that temptation. So to answer your question, yes, that means exactly we never have to be overcome by sin. We never have to let temptation get to the point of sin. We can take that thought captive. We can respond in obedience and God is pleased. Uh, the problem with us, James, is that we are so weak in our flesh, there are just going to be times when our guard is down, the enemy is always circling us, trying to find an opportunity, 
And uh, when you're in your flesh a little bit, when you haven't been reading the, the Word and being obedient to what you read, uh, when you're a little disconnected to God, He's going to tempt you, and He's stronger than we are. You know, I always like to reference Joseph when uh, he was being seduced by Potiphar's wife. Um, uh, Joseph was uh, a young man. Potiphar was a eunuch. His wife was sexually frustrated, and she wanted him. One thing I can tell you about Potiphar's wife is she was drop-dead gorgeous. And, and, and Joseph, when she tried to grab him, he ran from her, and he ran from her because, not because his faith was strong, but because he was weak. And that's what we need to do. And if we will run from the place of temptation, that's always the way out. If we'll run to Jesus in the middle of temptation, then uh, your summary, yeah, we don't ever have to give in. We don't ever have to be overcome by sin. The reality, however, is that the enemy catches us when we're weak. A lot of the things that we're tempted by, we just want to give in to. Uh, and, um, you know, we're just not very tough on sin especially when it's our sin. We can be really tough on the sin of other people, but when it comes to us, we can always find ways to excuse it and to rationalize it. And James, I've just described every human being that's ever lived. It's easy to point out what somebody else should do, but it's when it comes to our own lives that we get just a little less certain and we find reasons to give in, but we never have to be uh, given at all. Here's the last question of the week. It's from Morton. And it's this simple baby or child dedication. Is it required? Um, uh, no, it's not required. Nothing's required. These are the kind of things that we do because there's there's examples in the Bible. Now, baby baptism, infant baptism is not found in the Bible. Dedication of our children to God is. Uh, Hannah dedicated Samuel. Uh, committed Samuel to the Lord. That's what a dedication is. And she was faithful. To, uh, after not having a child, she was faithful. And uh, so, yeah, um, um, it, it not required, but certainly I don't know why you wouldn't want to do it. Anything that concerns a public profession or confession of your faith in Jesus Christ is a good thing. So, Morton, I think it's really important that um, that we do those things not because we have to, but because it's just one more way of saying to the Lord, God, I'm grateful for this child that you've given me. Protect him or protect her and bless them. And I always like to pray that, that uh, they will serve you all the days of their life. And the moment they know they're a sinner, they'll be able to say, I want mommy and daddy's Jesus. And uh, so that's what we do here, Morton. But not required, but it's always a good thing. There's the music. We are now officially at the end of the week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Go to church this weekend. Find somebody that you can serve, somebody you can pray for. Somebody looks like they're in pain. Love them. Cry with them. God bless you. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. 
The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.